Well, good morning, family. I'm excited to see you today. If you can, go ahead and make your way back to your seats, please. Now, if you have your Bibles, whether they're paper, electronic, or if somehow you pulled off getting a Bible that was made out of stone tablets that was chiseled, I don't care what you have, please grab them. I think it's important that you hear the Word of God, but more importantly, that you also read along as we study the Word of God together. Now, we're going to jump right into our text. It's a larger portion today, but before we do, we need to go to the Lord in prayer. I need to go to the Lord in prayer. You see, our message today is going to cover the resurrection. This is an event that is so vital to our faith that without it, everything crumbles. Christianity does not exist without this account right here. In fact, when I knew I'd be preaching on this text, I was, initially I was really, really excited. I was like, yes, the resurrection. Everyone knows this one. This is going to be a really easy one to go over. And then the more I studied it, I went, oh, I'm preaching on the resurrection. Everyone knows this one. This is going to be a little, little bit more difficult than I thought. But you see, as God started to humble me and kind of look at this, I saw the beauty of this message because it's really been working in my heart, and I'm excited for you guys to hear this here today. So let's go to the Lord. Let's ask him to truly help us grasp his word as this account is so easy to quickly read through that we can bypass a lot of the good stuff in it. So please, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of this day. Thank you, Father, that we can come before your throne, your gracious, your merciful, your powerful throne. Father, this message, as you know, has torn me apart looking at it as it's worked within me to see the beauty of it, how your resurrection changed everything. And I pray as it has worked on me, Father, would you, would you just come to this place? Holy Spirit, would you just open the ears, the eyes, the hearts of the people here? Would you help them to see this message? May it weigh on their hearts as much as it has mine as we take into account everything that you did for us. Father, we praise you, we love you, and it is in your holy name that we say amen. amen. You know, a really good instructor and mentor of mine a while back, he shared a personal struggle he was having. He highlighted the fact of how we all sometimes we fight to kind of see the hope in a very dim situation. You see, as he tells his story, he once faced a situation in life in which some of his best friends, two of his closest family friends, got into a brutal car accident, and they ended up going to the emergency room. Now, hearing this news, he rushed to the emergency room to be with them, and he was certain at one point that he was going to lose these two close friends of his. And he was starting to deal with the reality of how this was going to change his life forever. He was struggling to see the good in this. Now, he thought, hey, this can't get much worse. But unfortunately, as he was sitting there with these friends in the ER, and others heard about it, two other close family friends, they rushed on the way there. But they too got into a car accident. But this time it was fatal, and they died on the scene. Now here he is, Four dead family friends, because the other two passed away right then and there. And while they were all believers, as you can imagine, his world was rocked as he struggled to see the bigger picture of what was occurring. Now, I tell you this true story to help set up the scene as we enter our scriptures right after the crucifixion. That is, we need to remember that from the disciples' perspective, all hope seems lost. 
Remember, Jesus, their master, their Lord, their teacher, has just been brutally mocked, tormented, and beaten and bloodied on the cross to the point of death. And as for the disciples themselves, they scattered about in fear for thinking, we could be next. And then you had headstrong Peter, who even denied Jesus three times and went away in shame. And John, the only disciple actually in the crowd reporting watching this actual crucifixion, has just heard his Lord and his Savior tell him, take care of my mother. Could you imagine that? By all accounts, the disciples' world has been shattered as they hide for fear of losing their lives and try to reconcile what has just occurred. Simply put, all hope has been lost, or so it seems. And with this, we're prepared to turn to our Bibles in our first section in John chapter 19. So if you have them, break them out. Again, don't care if it's cell phone, don't care if it's the paper version. Let's turn to John chapter 19, verse 38, and we're going to start 38 through 42. Okay, here we go. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was, was um, crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. You know, I'm pausing to just digest this text a little bit. We actually have some extracurricular homework we have to do. Uh, because if we don't, we're going to miss a lot in this passage. So bear with me. Because the first thing we need to go over is what the typical Roman procedures were after crucifixion. What did they allow? And then the next thing we need to go over is typical Jewish burial customs. So as we go over this first, talking about the Roman procedures after a crucifixion, you need to know that it was customary for the Romans to grant the dead body to the next of kin. So when it came to the Jews, it didn't care if they were an enemy or criminal, they would actually give the body to the next of kin. However, they didn't do that if the person accused on the cross was one who had started a rebellion, which would have been Jesus' case. One accused of sedition, they wouldn't have granted that body to anybody, not even family. What they would have done is left that body on the cross. It would have been a show of force as the wild animals picked apart the body. To sit there and say, don't ever do this again. See the warning signs? Now, understanding that, we also need to briefly comprehend the typical Jewish burial customs of the time. Specifically, the Jews were known to bury their dead, even their enemies, and they would do so in a short amount of time. Now, part of that is because of the climate over there. It's hot. You don't want that body decomposing with the smells right next to you, so they would bury it very quickly. But an even more important reason that they would do this is the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law talked about that they were to avoid coming in contact with a dead body because it would make them unclean. In fact, from our, our text last week in verse 31, we discussed how the Jews didn't even want the bodies to remain on the cross because Sabbath is coming up. As a matter of fact, it's only a couple hours away at this point when Jesus has died on the cross. Now, as to the locations where the Jews actually buried their dead, if they were family members, they were typically buried in family caves or tombs alongside other deceased family. That's why these caves had large rolling doors 
so that they could actually keep away grave robbers, they could keep away other folks they didn't want to become unclean, and so they could also access it later on in the future to bury other family members. Now, make no mistake, these stone doors, they were large, they were heavy, and they, they estimate they weighed about one to two tons, 2,000 to 4,000 pounds, okay? And these stone doors, they would roll them along this little groove, and it would take several strong men to do that just to move it in front of the cave entrance. Now, what you have to imagine, though, is once it actually went into the cave entrance, it actually went into a little gully right down in front of it. Now, why is that important? Because though it's hard enough to push it in front of the tomb door, imagine trying to get it back open again. Now these guys are having to push up and out of the way two to four tons, which means several strong men, yeah, you would need that plus more to open up this stone door. Now, that's if you were family, okay? If you weren't, what they did is the Jews would still bury you, but it was outside the city far away. Uh, and it being a designated site. So in transitioning from burial sites to customs and preparing the body, the Jews, they didn't believe in embalming the body. Uh, they didn't believe in even cremation. Rather, they would first wash the body all over, and then they would prepare it by packing it with spices and aloes and myrrh. And what that did is it made a gummy-like resin substance. And they would, again, pack the body. Then they would do linen cloths all the way around. And over time, what that would do, within a couple hours, it would start to harden in the shape of a body. They would also use a separate uh, face cloth when they were wrapping up the body. Okay, so now that we've covered this important info, let's break down what's actually occurring in these verses. That is, right off the bat, in verses 38 and 39, we meet Joseph of Arimathea, who asked for Jesus' body, and Nicodemus, who brings 75 pounds of spices to prepare Jesus' body. Now, Nicodemus, you may remember him as the Pharisee who came to Jesus at night. He was also the one who was asking how a man can be born again. To understand who Joseph is, however, you have to turn to Luke chapter 23, verses 50 and 51, in which we discover that he was a leader that was a part of the Jewish Sanhedrin. That was that same high council of Pharisees and Sadducees who had just elected and who had just pushed to have Jesus crucified. However, Luke tells us that Joseph, he disagreed with that decision. He was a righteous man, and he was looking for God's kingdom. So what are you going to do with this information? What do we do with this information? Especially considering how John just remarked that these are secret disciples. Should we start to think ill of them? Absolutely not. Because to do so would be to miss the vital portion of this passage. I want you to think about this. Think about this for just a second. We now know that both Joseph and Nicodemus were high up Jewish officials. They were afraid of their fellow countrymen. Yet both, upon the death of Jesus, came out and did something bold. In Joseph's instance, he took it upon himself when all the other disciples that were as close to Jesus as you can imagine fell away. They didn't come and ask for the body, but Joseph did. And you just learned that the Romans, that wasn't customary for them to give it away. Not somebody accused of sedition. No, they let that body stay on the cross. That means that Joseph must have used his position of authority to even get a meeting with Pilate in the first place to make that bold request. And moreover, think about what we just discussed earlier, that the Jews, they avoided coming in contact with the dead. That was especially before the Sabbath and definitely before the Passover, which was at hand. Yet both Joseph and Nicodemus were willing to do this and be considered unclean. And they did so knowing quickly that if they didn't act, 
Jesus wasn't going to get a proper burial. As again, Sabbath and Passover, that's a matter of hours away. They wouldn't have been allowed to work for the Old Testament law. And further yet, we have Nicodemus bringing about 75 pounds of lotions and spices to prepare Jesus' body, showcasing his appreciation of Jesus because kings would, see, would receive that amount. As a matter of fact, King Herod is reported as getting 500 pounds of spices and aloes to prepare his body. One man has just given him 75 pounds for Jesus. That shows Nicodemus, or, uh, yeah, Nicodemus his heart where he's at, how he views Jesus. Now, this, this kind of humbled me here when I, when I really studied it. As they're preparing the body, I want you to think about this. They went per customs, which means they had to wash the body. That means as these guys are washing the body, they're having to wash the holes in his hand. The thorn marks that were scourged into his head, the scourge marks in the back, the holes in the feet, the pierced side, they had to see that up close and personal as they're preparing the body. Could you imagine doing that? Could you imagine what they felt? And to top it all off, they lay Jesus in a new tomb, not among criminals outside the city, where the resurrection may have been hard to even account for, but rather they do it in the nearest tomb, which happens to be Joseph's own, according to the account of Matthew chapter 27, verse 60. And adding it all up, we get to see that these secret disciples who were once afraid to openly follow Jesus, they're, no, they're now no longer afraid. And instead of trying to hit them up, because I'm going to be honest, that's the first thing I did when I read this text. First thing I thought is, man, it's a little too little, too late. You couldn't have done that beforehand? We make the mistake of seeing here, of seeing the beauty of the cross and how it's already at work in these two. I love what William Barclay says in his commentary on John that the power of the cross was even then turning the coward into the hero and the waverer into the man who took an irrevocable decision for Christ. And with this, we have our first point. So if you're taking notes, I want you to get that the power of the cross has brought Jesus' followers out of darkness to light. Again, if you're taking notes, the power of the cross has brought Jesus' followers out of darkness to light. Now, before we move on to our next section, I want to point out four more critical factors in this passage. The first is, if you look at verse 41, John discusses how Jesus was laid in a tomb nearby in a garden where no one had yet been laid. Now, why is that significant? Think about what John is doing here. He's pointing to an advance that because nobody else is laid in this tomb, that because it is brand new, there is no possibility of a mistaken account of which body came forth from that tomb. Remember, they used family tombs. Multiple people would usually be buried there together. And now we know nobody else could possibly be in that tomb but Jesus. Second, this allows for the possibility that because there is a garden nearby, there may have been a gardener. Now, that's going to be important in our last portion of the text today, so keep that in the back of your minds. And third, when comparing this story to Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66, we learn that because the Pharisees were afraid that somebody could even steal Jesus' body, they were granted Roman soldiers to guard the tomb for three days. Matthew further shows us that the sealed tomb they, they verified it. In other words, they made sure that rock, that one to two ton rock, is right there in front of the cave entrance. And then they sealed it, warning others, don't come near. It's a mark of death if you do. And fourth and finally, I want you to notice how Joseph and Nicodemus, 
how they were preparing the body. Does it show that they were expecting Jesus to rise again? I mean, my question would be this. If you knew he was going to come back, would you go through all that? Absolutely not. Now, with this, we're prepared to move to our next section in the text. So if you would, go to chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, and follow along. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So here we come to understand that Mary Magdalene, she comes to Jesus' tomb. And while I don't have a lot of time to get too far off in the details, the other accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they state that she even knew where this tomb was because she had followed Joseph of Arimathea when they had laid Jesus' body down. That's why she knew where to go. They also further indicate that she wasn't alone, that she was with Jesus' mother, Mary. And their purpose for even going to this tomb is, remember, the Sabbath was only hours away. So as they're seeing Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus take the body, they're probably thinking, oh gosh, with the lack of time we have, they're probably just going to shove them somewhere, something temporary. We're going to have to go back and put them in a more permanent place. That's why they go and they prepare more spices so that after the Sabbath has come and gone, they can go back out and get Jesus' body. However, on the way there, they start to ponder, who's going to move that stone door? Remember, we just talked about that it would take several strong men to push a 2,000 to 4,000 pound stone up and then out of the way. So in putting this together with John's account, it's no wonder why in verse 1, when Mary sees the stone door open, she's in shock. And the text doesn't even have her going to investigate. Remember, her just seeing that stone door as it is, that's enough to, to have her wonder, how did this happen? How is that possible? This is why in verse 2, she runs to tell Peter and John what's occurred, remarking with the word, they have taken Jesus out of the tomb, possibly referring to the Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb, or the thought of grave robbers. She then remarks, we, her and the other women with her, don't know where they laid Jesus. Now we need to understand after reading that, that Mary hasn't even considered the possibility that Jesus is risen. As she's looking at it, she's still focused on where the body went. Where did they take the body? Now, after telling Peter and John this, they run to the tomb to see what's really going on. And I'll be honest, I love this part of the text. I love how John always refers to himself as the one that, that Jesus loved. <laughs> it's a pretty cool way of uh, boasting yourself there. I also love how he talks about how he outran Peter and he got to the tomb first. Nice. But our real focus should be on when John actually gets to the tomb. See, what I couldn't understand about this is why. Why does he outrun Peter? He's going as fast as he can. He gets to the tomb. He looks in first, and he, he stops. 
Why didn't he go in? Why didn't John go in? You remember that homework we did at the beginning? We talked about Jewish burial customs and how they use that gummy-like resin substance before they wrap the body in the linen cloth, and then it kind of hardens in the shape of a body. Now think about it. John's running. He gets to the tomb first. He looks in real quick and... Oh, there's the cloth. It's in the shape of a body. There's the body. Jesus is right there. All of a sudden, though, Peter catches up and charges right into the tomb in true Peter fashion. And he also notices that the cloths, they're also lying there where Jesus was. But then he sees something different. He sees that the separate face cloth that is also used, that's off to the side. That's separate. That's nice and neat and folded up. And to put that in perspective of what Peter's seeing, it's like the cloths are perfectly still in the shape of a body. Yet with the face cloth gone, Peter knows body isn't there. It's like this body has just vanished through the linen cloths. That's impossible. And this makes it obvious that no mere human hands did anything to remove the body from the linen cloths. As had they, think about it, the linen cloths with that gummy resin, they'd have been all over the place. It'd have been a complete mess. And so I can only imagine that after seeing Peter's face in shock, John is propelled to come in and see what's going on. Now, while both Peter and John are wrestling to figure this out and look at this puzzling situation, John makes a wonderful confession in verse 8 that after seeing this, he believed. In other words, John is the first one to kind of comprehend, oh my gosh, we're not looking for a body anymore. No, 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 we're looking for Jesus. He's got to be alive. Now, he doesn't know why. He doesn't know how. Heck, at this point, more critically for this purpose, he doesn't even understand that it's for the propitiation of our sins why Jesus went through all this. But he does realize Jesus is alive. And thus, we're now ready to move to our third portion of our text today in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. So again, please follow along as we read the text. Okay, here we go. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, in digesting this text, this last little bit of text, we know that Peter and John, they returned home. But Mary stayed just outside the tomb. When she finally goes into the tomb, it's interesting enough that when she gets there, she didn't even pay attention to the cloth evidence that Peter and John saw. What does she see? Two angels. 
And what I find really unique about this is when people saw angels all throughout the Bible, what did they typically do? There was trembling. There was fear. However, John doesn't record Mary being afraid. Rather, he records her being so focused on finding that body of Jesus. In fact, the angels ask her, who are you looking for? And she only remarks how they, t- they took away her Lord, and she doesn't know where they laid him. Hinting that, again, she's still looking for that body. No doubt, she's still in distress, she's still in shock, and she turns around to see what she believes is a gardener. Now remember in our first passage today, that John mentions there was a garden next to the tomb, hinting that Mary may have supposed, obviously, there could be a gardener there. And after this gardener asks Mary whom she is seeking, she again focuses on where the body of her Lord was laid, supposing that maybe this gardener took it. Now I want you to keep in mind that in both of these instances, Mary hasn't told the angels, she hasn't told the supposed gardener the name of who she's looking for. If you look at that text, she never sits there and says, I'm looking for Jesus. It's, I'm looking for my Lord. I'm looking for my Lord. Where have they taken him? I can't find it. Where's my Lord? Did you take my Lord? Where have you laid him? And this goes to show how she is so distraught, so misfocused, she wasn't even paying attention to see the signs and clues that Jesus, he's right there in front of her. And you know why I'd love to point out all of Mary's faults here and how I'd never do that? The truth is, how often do we do this? Well, we're in such a brutal situation. We're tired, we're frustrated. Things are going as south as we could ever imagine. And we fail to see how God has been right there with us through the whole, whole portion. He's never left us. Now, as we digest this, I want to point your attention to something beautiful that occurs next. For you see, all the gardener has to say is one word, one little word that changes everything for Mary's outlook. And when Mary hears this word, when she hears her name, she instantly recognized it was Jesus. I want you to imagine if you were in that moment and you just hear Jesus call your name. Stop and think about that for a second because that's a direct callback to John chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, in which Jesus calls his sheep by name and they hear his voice and they follow him. Could you imagine him calling you by name, his sheep? Now, Mary is the perfect example of this because she recognizes Jesus' voice and she refers to him as rabbi. And while Mary has come to grips that Jesus is alive, she, like John, she hasn't comprehended how Jesus' resurrection from the grave, it has changed everything. Instead, she clings to Jesus and we see him tell her, hey, don't hold on to me. Now, if we take this the wrong way, it sounds a little bit harsh. But the truth is, Jesus, he's not being harsh here. Rather, he's pointing Mary to see the bigger implications of his resurrection, that he has secured our faith, our salvation. In other words, that's great that you see that I'm alive, but what does that mean that I'm alive? That means he truly is the Son of God. That means that he has defeated death, he has defeated sin. Mary, look at the bigger picture here. Now remember, in 40 days from now, Jesus, he's going to rise to heaven where he will be seated at the right hand of the Father. And as such, and until then, there's still work that needs to be done, which is why he prompts Mary, go and tell the disciples. Tell my brothers, I'm risen. In fact, he tells Mary to tell his brothers, I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. 
And here we see a sudden shift has now happened. You see, in the Gospel of John, Jesus 206 times, 206 times brings up the Father. Father, my Father. This is the first time he brings up, it's now the disciples' Father. You see, they are now, by faith, a part of God's family. And this leads us to our second and our third main points from this text. So that is, if you're taking notes, the second main point I want you to get is that the empty tomb shows us that death has no power for those in Christ. Again, the empty tomb shows us that death has no power for those in Christ. Now, the third point I want you to get, if you're taking notes, is that the resurrection secured believers in faith to be adopted into the family of God. Again, the resurrection secured believers in faith to be adopted into the family of God. Now, as Mary goes to tell the disciples this news at the end of our passage, we're left with an assurance unlike any other that is an assurance forevermore. And that assurance is a direct result from the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fact that he did rise from the grave. You see, where Adam and Eve fell in the first garden, condemning us to sin and death, Jesus' resurrection in the garden here, it brought us to life. For Jesus, he's the true Passover lamb, the one who takes away the sins of the world and secures life for those that believe in him as their personal Lord and Savior. And with this, I believe it's safe to say we have our final application. So if you're taking notes, the final application, the biggest thing I want you to get is that because Jesus is risen, our faith and salvation through Christ is assured forevermore. Again, because Jesus is risen, our faith and salvation through Christ is assured forevermore. Amen. You know, as we we come to the end of this message and we start to prepare for communion. I want to remind you how we started out this morning with that true story. I believe it's going to help prepare us to kind of get in the right mindset before we come to the Lord's table. Now, you may remember in that story, my mentor, my instructor, a good friend of mine, had just lost four dear, close family friends all within a short time frame. He was in disarray and he was struggling. And he felt very much like our disciples did at the beginning here. All hope is lost. Now, I brought up that story to highlight an important truth. For you see, in that moment of distress where my mentor, much like Mary, could only focus on the tragic events that were taking place, he said God started to work in him. God started to remind him how, like Mary, he needed to look beyond the grave to see how Jesus' resurrection brings true life. God reminded him that his friends were thankfully, they were all believers. And that because of his work on the cross, because of Jesus' resurrection, they were now at home with him in his presence. As if that's not enough, he further reminded him of the life-changing impact that the gospel of Jesus Christ has. For you see, as he preached at his friends' funerals, 14 more family members actually came to confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And because of this, this once tragic account with no supposed hope now had the greatest assurance ever of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And my mentor could be thankful forevermore knowing that this wasn't the end, 
but rather that he and his close family friends would see each other in Christ's presence once again. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we all, we're going to face difficult times. And when you do, I invite you to see beyond those grave circumstances, to see that death has lost its sting on all those who believe in Jesus Christ. I want you to see the assurance Christ provided for us forevermore in resurrecting us through his work on the cross so we don't have to be afraid of death or destruction. He's defeated them both. Our Lord has paid the price so we could be brought to life in him. And it's because of this beautiful, amazing fact that we have the awesome privilege to be able to worship him and remember what our king has done for us. And it's because of this beautiful, amazing fact alone that we can sit at the table in the presence of our king. It's a reminder that it's because of Christ's work, not ours, that we are adopted sons and daughters. We have the privilege of inheriting the kingdom of God as we stare in adoration of him when we come to this table. Now, I do want to clarify something, as I think sometimes we hesitate. When we get ready to hand out the elements, we hesitate a little bit because we think, are we worthy to take them? Am I righteous enough? I mean, I sinned this week. I had, I had a bad week. Something went wrong. But this table isn't a reminder about you. It's a reminder about him. We don't sit at this table because we're perfect, because we're sinless. No, we sit at this table because he was perfect, because he was sinless. Now, the only thing I do ask is if you haven't accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I would humbly, respectfully request please don't partake of the elements at this time. It's not meant to be harsh. It's just meant to be a warning in love. Because by doing so, what you're saying is, I can stand at this table before a righteous God, one that does not accept sin, and I can stand on my own account knowing that I'm good enough. And we aren't. Otherwise, why did Jesus come and do what he did? So again, if you haven't accepted Christ and you're struggling with that, that's okay. Maybe use this time instead Pray, wrestle with him, ask him to convict you, ask him to lead you to a closer relationship with him. And never forget, you can always come up, you can see any of our elders, you can see myself, Pastor Neil, we would love to be able to walk beside you as you get to know Christ. And with this, let's go to prayer. Let's thank God for the awesome privilege that we have in sitting at this table with him. Heavenly Father, I'm absolutely overwhelmed by the power of the cross, by your work, by your resurrection, which secured everything. You are the Son of God, Lord Jesus. Father, we are so thankful that you have brought us closer to you, and I pray that this message would pierce our hearts, that we would see forevermore the beauty we have in a risen Lord and Savior. Our God lives and because of that, we live in him. Fathers, we get ready to sit before your presence in communion. I pray, help us to focus on these truths. Help us to see, to hear, to taste, to understand everything you paid, the sacrifices you made as we stare in adoration of you. It's in Lord Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As I ask our leaders to come to the front to hand out the elements, please continue to focus on and meditate on these great truths.
the fact that our Lord is risen, the fact that he is the Son of God, and he secured our salvation in faith for those who believe. Let's go ahead and pass these elements out. Did everyone get a chance to receive and open up the elements? I want us to humbly reflect on what this morsel of bread, what this truly represents, because it's more than just bread. When we look at this, what it represents to us is that cross, it's that resurrection, it's looking at Jesus' body, it's knowing that it was broken for us as he defeated sin, as he defeated death and brought us home to God. Please take it and eat it in remembrance of him. Next, let's reflect on what this, this cup of juice truly represents. The blood of Christ, which was shed on that cross so that we could be brought to life in him. Take it and drink it in remembrance of him. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you dearly for the, the chance to worship you this morning, to look at the beauty of the cross, to look at the greatest event in all of history, in your resurrection. Father, seeing that you are so amazing in setting us free, bringing us to life through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray, help this message to settle on our hearts. Help us to really reflect at this time of sitting at the table in adoration of you. Father, we love you. We adore you and we praise you. And it's in Lord Jesus' name we all said and prayed, amen, amen. Can we stand? Can we worship our King?